Christian. And we will see that they learned a very important lesson that none can stand before the Lord, before the Holy God, unless he or she stands upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. And so our passage today is 1 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 9, and then 19 through 21. Would you stand with me as we read God's holy word? The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, what, sh- what, what shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from him. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your root tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and, and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your, pre, your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? And after he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And then yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering, and then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, and it happened by coincidence. And then go down to verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And so the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall... He go up from us. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim instead saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So let's pray. Father, as we read through this passage and, and ultimately as we ask the same questions as these men of Beth Shemesh, who can stand before a holy God? Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, help us to understand the things that we read and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in a very short time, seven months, as the ark passed from one city to the next among the Philistines, and as God judged each city in turn, the Philistines came to realize that the Lord God is real. At first... The thought on their minds was not unlike the Israelites last week. They believed there was magical power in the ark. They reasoned that to get rid of God's displeasure, all they had to do was send his magical object away from their city. But to confirm that reasoning, the Philistine leaders summoned their priests and diviners. And Felicia had had enough contact with Israel over the decades to know some of the Israelite religion, and so... These priests of Philistia 
mention, as we see in verse 3, that the Philistine leader should not just send the ark away by itself, but should send it away with a guilt offering. And I think they got a bit creative in suggesting that they make golden objects shaped in the form of God's judgment, painful tumors and mice. And as I was preparing this week, I was trying to think, what does a golden tumor look like? It may be that they were just a little bit lazy, like a blob of gold. That's easy. That looks like a tumor. But notice the actual good advice in verse 5. The Philistine priests tell their leaders to give glory to the God of Israel, and perhaps he will lighten his hand from them. And as they insightfully ask, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians? And the Pharaoh hardened their hearts. And that was an excellent question, wasn't it? For it got to the heart of the matter. Cut away from this story all of the creativity of golden tumors and mice and milk cows and carts. And what do you have left? You have the questions asked by the men of Beth Shemesh in verse 20. Who is able to stand before this Lord, the Holy God? And the answer, they didn't know the answer. But they asked the right question. And we know the answer from the Bible. No one is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, except those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And what remains for those who are not so clothed? And the answer is hell. And it's good that we talk about this subject of hell every so often. We probably don't talk about it enough, even here. And so I want you to take a look, if you will, at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 11. And one of the benefits of returning here is that we're able to do these for you behind me. 2 Corinthians 5 reads, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident Yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So in this passage, in verse 10, Paul mentions this judgment seat of Christ and says that we all must appear there, every single man and woman and child. And what does that mean, especially in the light of some passages that talk about believers who are no longer condemned? For example, in John 3, verses 18 through 19, we read, He who believes in him is not condemned. And Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. 
having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And so these two passages from John and Ephesians are important because they let us know that the last judgment isn't just like an earthly court case. God will be looking at the balance of your deeds and will not be determining if your sins outweigh your good works. In earthly court cases, the importance of the trial is to determine after an investigation whether the weight of the evidence supports greater guilt than innocence. But God is omniscient. He already knows every fact, everything. And furthermore, as Ephesians reminded us, because of Christ, we stand holy and without blame before God. The rest who are outside of Christ have no hope but to await their sure destruction. And before I talk about hell itself, let me finish that train of thought. If God is omniscient, then why a judgment? And if believers are not condemned, why must they appear before the judgment seat of Christ for the public revelation of their deeds? Well, look at Revelation 20, verses 11 to 14. Here we see the judgment and its participants described And as I read it with you, notice that both the righteous and the wicked are brought before the throne of God. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the deeds which were written in the books The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And so Revelation 20 suggests that this judgment, while it may be, it says, according to their works, we know from the rest of Scripture that the works of every man, that the righteousness of even the the best men and women on earth is as filthy rags, compared to God's complete and holy character. And so what works is it that stands for the believer? Well, ultimately, the only thing that will allow them entrance into heaven is the perfect righteous work of Jesus Christ. And one of the other passages, many passages in the scriptures that describe that to us, say that we are clothed in that righteousness. We are given new names, new identity in that sense of being an adopted child of the Lord. And so as we stand here, even though our works may be proclaimed before the people, what becomes clear is that God's judgment, first of all, is righteous. There will be no excuse for those who are condemned, but there will also be no pride for those who are redeemed. God's righteous declaration will bring him glory. And that is the purpose of the final judgment. God will be shown gracious to those whom he has saved. It will be proven just with regard to those whom he condemns. And so what I want to focus the rest of our time this morning is dealing with what are undoubtedly questions that you have for those who are condemned. Questions that you have about hell. And I've chosen three that seem to be the most common. One, is hell a real place or is it just a metaphor? Two, is hell a temporary situation or is it forever? 
And three, if hell is real, and if it is an eternal state, how can that square with a God who is said to be good and loving? And so the first question asks whether hell is a real place or some kind of metaphor for God's wrath and judgment. And when we ask that kind of question, what we're really asking is what the biblical authors meant when they discussed hell. In particular, we are interested in what God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament said directly about the hell. And so we can see some of the things here, especially from Jesus' words. In Matthew 13, Jesus says this, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so we see in these passages a fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal destruction. These are not comfortable descriptions and they describe the final state of those who reject Christ. And these could be our neighbors, perhaps some family members, close friends, Even perhaps some of you who have not submitted to Christ. In Matthew 5.29, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about hell. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And the word translated hell in this verse is the Greek word Gehenna. And that word... Gehenna means literally the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place that was just outside of Jerusalem. It was the valley described in 2 Kings 16 where many Israelites had sacrificed their children to the pagan god Molech. Later, that valley was the location where those of Jerusalem would burn the the city's trash and dead animals. And you might consider it the city's landfill, but it was more than that because Everything was burned there, and the smoke and the stench could be seen and smelled for for a long way away from there. And it burned night and day. And so it's not surprising that it became a symbol for what hell would be like. It was as if Jesus said to those listening during the Sermon on the Mount, You see that valley? where those fires are burning night and day. I mean, you can go up, you can look at it. In the middle of the night, those fires are still burning. During the morning hours, those fires are still burning. They never go out. It would be better for you to lose the part of your body that's causing you to sin than for your whole body to be thrown into that fire. And of course, Jesus' description in Matthew 18 of everlasting fire and Mark 9 of the unquenchable fire of hell at the end of the age tells us that Jesus isn't just threatening that the people will be thrown into the city dump. 
He meant something far worse. Is hell a real place? Yes, but admittedly, the biblical authors and Jesus spoke about hell in symbolic language that tried to capture the horror of hell in a way that their audience could comprehend. A symbol is always less than the reality it represents. I want you to remember that. A symbol is always less than the reality it represents. If we drive down a road and we see a sign on which two or three children are pictured crossing the road, we know that there's a school nearby. But we don't imagine that the symbol is a complete description of the school. The bread we eat at the Lord's table at the end of the service is a symbol of God's grace towards us. It's a symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf and our unity with him. And it's certainly a marvelous symbol of the means of life, of faith, of being united to Christ. But our Lord and his grace and his sacrifice are so much more than that symbol. We interact with the symbol so that we will be prepared for the real thing. Does that make sense? And what that means is that there is no comfort to be taken in saying that the Bible describes hell in symbolic language that doesn't make the reality of hell less dreadful. It, in fact, likely means that it's worse. Think about what the symbols of hell point to. Fire speaks of pain. Various passages describe the fires as tormenting and anguishing. Weeping and gnashing of teeth point to sorrow and to bitterness. And another common symbol used to describe hell is is darkness or separation. We see in Matthew 8, I tell you, Jesus says, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, meaning the outer kingdom of man, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that darkness implies desolation, isolation. God is described as being light, and in Him there is no darkness. And yet here, hell is said to be outer, implying distance and darkness, implying without God's favor. And so yes, hell is a real situation and place, but I I don't think we can say that it's 400 feet underneath the Siberia, you know? I do know, I don't know where hell is except to say that it's far from hope and thus far from the immediate presence of God's mercy and grace. Many of our images of hell come from Dante. They come from his work, The Inferno and Several Rings of Hell and um, the things of the Middle Ages in particular is, is they expanded and, and multiplied images of what hell would be like. Where it is precisely, though, we don't know. I do know you don't want to go there. Fair enough? But for those who do go there, our second question asks whether hell is a temporary state after which those who go there are either destroyed or ultimately forgiven. Or is hell eternal? In Mark 9, Jesus says this, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So what does that mean? 
where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, we already read the passage in 2 Thessalonians where Paul described the destruction as eternal destruction. But some might ask, does, does the word destruction mean something along the line of death? Is it possible that what God is saying is that those whom he judges are both physically and spiritually destroyed so that they cease to exist altogether forever? Well, if that were the case, it wouldn't make much sense to talk about a worm that doesn't die. Or a fire that's not quenched or even really to talk about hell much at all. There are passages, though, that help us in this regard. Revelation 14.9, for example, starts, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lord, of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up, For a few days, for a few years, for a few millennia. It doesn't say that, does it? Forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So how can the smoke of the torment of those who rebel against Christ go up forever and ever if their torment is only temporary? Or that their rest is non-existent day or night? Revelation 20 says that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. And that sounds a lot like Revelation 14. But then we look at this at the end of chapter 20. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Sounds a lot like that final judgment that we read about. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So anyone whose name is not written in the book of life refers to all those who do not have faith in Christ all those who are not eternally in heaven, and these are thrown into the lake of fire. And again, that phrase is symbolic language, but clearly John says that the duration is forever, which matches with what Jesus said and with what Paul says. Why would any of these say eternal or forever if they really only meant temporary? Now, many times in the New Testament, the duration of punishment in hell is paralleled with the duration of eternal life. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that those who are true believers will enter into eternal blessedness, while those who are not will enter into eternal punishment. Now, the same adjective, eternal, is used of both. So is our eternal state with God in heaven only temporary? And if heaven is truly eternal, why would we think that the same word used in the same sentence in parallel to contrast heaven and hell would be meaning something suddenly different? The truth is, and this leads us to our final question, namely how an eternal real hell can square with a good and loving God, is that the prospect of an eternal hell is terrifying and most definitely unpopular. 
at least unpopular today. A real eternal hell was believed in and taught by the church for 1,600 years after Christ. But beginning at that time, and particularly gaining momentum in the 18 and 1900s, first the world, and then the church began to weaken in its view of hell. It began to be thought that a good God could not possibly condemn non-believers to eternal punishment because doesn't God love everyone? And wouldn't that mean that maybe a little punishment was good, but that ultimately God would bring all people to repentance or at least not make them suffer forever? And those are understandable desires given the horrors of hell. But they are not faithful positions to what the Bible says. And I want you to think about this. They are ultimately justifications for not heeding the word of Christ. They're ultimately justifications for saying, well, I want to reject hell so I can keep doing what I'm doing. What happens if we water down hell, so to speak, and turn its eternal flames into a puff of temporary steam? What do we give up? Well, we give up many important things. I'll just quickly name a few. We give up the holiness and justice of God. We're told in the Bible that just as God is loving and good, that life, that He's also a consuming fire. That He is completely righteous. That He is a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished. Well, in our society today, the highest imaginable value is that man must be happy. That means that people have no difficulty with heaven or at least with their distorted concept of heaven as a place designed purely for their eternal happiness. But in a world consumed with self-exaltation and personal happiness, sin is anything that hurts others or prevents us from being happy. And of course, even that standard, you know, that's selectively applied because there seems to be no problem with hurting the unborn, for example. Yet generally, to the worldly man, a woman who desires not to worry but to be happy, Some of the commandments like don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, those make sense because you don't want that to be done to you, but worship God alone. Have no idols in God's place. Keep the Sabbath day only. Sanctify God's name. Those are all senseless, useless things. So, because unless they increase our happiness, they just don't make it into my program. Well, hell destroys that nice fuzzy, self-centered picture. It tells us that there is a mighty, holy, righteous judge in whose eyes we are sinful, not because we hurt others, but because we have exalted ourselves in God's place. It lifts our sin and its consequences to a whole different level of significance. If we give up hell, we lose the gospel. I like what author Tim Keller has written. He says, if there's no wrath by God on sin, and there's no such thing as hell, not only does it actually make what Jesus did on the cross inexplicable, it trivializes what he's done. If you get rid of a God who has wrath and hell, you've got a God who loves us in general, but that's not as loving as the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ who loved us with a costly love. Look at what it cost and what he did. Look what he was taking upon himself. If you get rid of hell and 
in wrath, what did Jesus take upon himself? What you do is take the incredible act of sacrifice and love and turn it into something very small, end quote. The gospel, the good news, is so good because the bad news is so bad. The gospel says that man's chief end is not his own happiness, but the glory of God. The man has transgressed that, and as a consequence, he cannot be in the presence of God forever. And if we give up hell, we give up the zeal for evangelism. Friends, if your neighbor's house was on fire, would you not warn him? It was not... It's been a while now, but one night we woke up to the sound of fire engine just outside of our window, and we looked out, and there were the blinking, you know, the circling red lights as the fire engines pulled up next to our next-door neighbor because he had left his fire on during the night and caught his roof on fire. If we had seen that, if we had awakened beforehand to see his roof on fire, we would have jumped out of bed, we would have gotten our clothes already gone next door and, you know, banged on the door and on the windows and said, wake up. Well, many of your neighbor's homes, the very bodies that house their immortal souls are on fire and about to be consumed. Should you not warn them? Or would you soften the truth? You see, hell adds a deep seriousness to the call to share the gospel. And we should think of hell with with grief. Never forget the words of the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 that we read a while ago. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a rhetorical question, but we know the answer. We shall not. And if it's true that those who reject Christ are bound for a Christless eternity of torment, how eager we should be to tell them about the gospel. And there's more that could be said. Perhaps more that should be said. But I do not want to leave you without hope this morning. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, hell and the final judgment are not things you should fear. Indeed, all of those who are in Christ accept this fate because their names, like I said, have been written in the book of life, even before the creation of the world. And the second death, which is that eternal punishment, has no claim on those who belong to the Lamb. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And even if we presently suffer with the difficulties of this earthly life, one day we will be clothed with immortality. And as a guarantee of that promise, the Bible says that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So if you trust in Christ for your salvation, when you die, you will be with him. You need not fear that day when the books are opened. Yes, you will appear before the throne. Yes, your works will be on display, but what will count is not your works, but Christ's works. In God's sight, you have obeyed his commandments perfectly. He will find no hint or trace or stain of sin in you. Because Jesus obeyed his works, his will, 
His law perfectly. And you are clothed in that righteousness because what Christ did on the cross was not insignificant. Because what He bore upon Himself, His perfect sinless self, was your sin and the wrath of God. Do not forget that the reason that Christ suffered torment Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane was over the thought of suffering the wrath of the Father. And having that sense of unity for a moment, that forsakenness take place. If you are His, Jesus died for every sin you have ever committed or will commit in the future, no matter how public or private. Therefore, even though, as I say, you will appear, and that is a reality, before the throne, giving account For your deeds, this will not be a judgment day. For you, the real judgment day occurred at the cross. That was when judgment day was for you. When Jesus died. And when he said it is finished, judgment day was done. And so when that scene depicted in John and by John in Revelation 20 finally comes and we appear before the throne having been made spotless and blameless, I like that image in Revelation of that white robe. I don't know what all of that, that visual imagery is also got an element of symbolism in it, but that whole picture of being clothed in perfect righteousness, of hearing the pages read of the Lamb's Book of Life and hearing your name being spoken. Of having the Lord saying to you, well done, faithful servant. That is the encouragement today. But let us, as we have that aim of being pleasing to the Lord for his unmerited favor and grace, let us also remember what those men of Beth Shemesh said long ago. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? And do not hesitate to share that answer. Don't cringe over the thought of persecution or rejection of a world that has tried to get away and do away with the concept of hell and eternal consequence. Or even members of the mainstream church saying, love wins. No, God wins. God's perfect holy justice will win. To the praise of His glory. And so even though it's unpopular, you know the destiny that awaits those of Christ and those who are not of Christ. You know that your neighbor's house is burning even though they have put in front of it a facade of a mansion that has no end. Tell Him, none can stand. That's the answer. None can stand unless they're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful that judgment day for us was on the cross. And that he bore 
upon his own shoulders your wrath against our sin. And so, Father, we proclaim you to be righteous and just and good. We glorify you that there is such a thing as hell as it speaks to your righteousness and justice. And yet, Lord, may we not just casually say that, but may we soberly be reminded every day of the need to share the gospel. Give us boldness, we pray. Give us opportunities. And use our words, use us as your instruments of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.